another episode of Debatable with your hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle. And, and today, today, we are joined by Bailey Gaspi. She is um, an Australasian women's ESL champion. She was also the finals best speaker and eighth best ESL speaker for that tournament. Um, in the Cordillera Debate Open, or Cardo, she was also the grand champion. She was Debatable Open's overall best speaker. And she has, in our small group of friends, in the UP Debate Society, she is known as the person who has done the most tournaments within one academic year. Um, by the time that we're recording this, it's 36 Tomorrow, she's turning 37. 37. Like, it's her birthday. <laughs> it's her <something>. birthday. <laughs> That's um, it, It'll be her 37th tournament tomorrow. So, um, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing um, to, to meet with us today. Thanks for having me. As a big fan, of course, of the Debatable. It's always fun. And while the subject matter is slightly scary for you, because I feel like I might get judged by some people out there, I'm so super happy to be excited to be here. So the first question we have for you is why? Why did you do this to yourself, Bea? Well, people ask me that a lot, so I feel like I have a default answer. Before COVID happened, online tournaments were simply things that were not imaginable at all. And we had a slew of tournaments that got canceled. But I think online debating made everything so much more accessible. Before COVID happened, I'd go to tournaments around five times a year, which changed a lot. So I think being able to do it more now, because there's an orgcom in every country that wants to do a tournament every weekend, it allows me to practice debate more. And that's primarily the reason why. The second reason why is also, I just wanted to be closer to some people in UPBS. And I feel like partnering up with them through tournaments is the most fun to do it. So yeah, it's really about having fun with debate and being with more people. Yeah, so at this point, it's like 36, 37. Who cares? I stopped counting after five. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, so our real question now is, um, how did you actually manage to, you know, you know, manage? How did you manage to, you know, do debate in different time zones? Because there have been cases, and we did hear some cases where you would join two tournaments on the same weekend, but in different time zones, which we imagine to be extremely exhausting. So how did you manage, like, managing your time, managing your efforts, your energy, etc.? Well, I think it's really about not doing anything during the weekday or being able to stock up on sleep and rest during the weekday. If I have two tournaments in the same time zone or in a different time zone, preferably, what I do is I'd really just use the day before that to sleep for around 24 hours and so I can prepare and get some rest. I have stopped that now. I have been smarter <laughs> with my management of tournaments in like if I'm if I have to do a tournament or two tournaments at the same time I'll just really try to make it really spaced out like one tournament would be in an Australian time zone the other tournament would be in a European time zone and they'd never inter like overlap and there's even some rest time in between so it's really about calculation actually I love my trustee the timezoneconverter.com that helps me calculate schedules as well as just really getting a lot of sleep I was gonna ask you about 
the calculations because I was saying like, what if some of those schedules overlap? Like, does that happen? Have you been in situations where you might have to miss a round in one tournament because the other tournament was starting because of like delays or something like that? Yes, definitely. Well, for one, I think that I really don't like missing rounds because I feel like I made the commitment to a tournament. So if I skip around or if I iron person around or I force someone to iron person, it makes you feel guilty. So as much as possible, I try to avoid that. But the last time that that happened, it was there was a tournament that was happening in Africa and the tournament that was wrapping up in Bangladesh. And the Bangladeshi tournament was delayed. So I made a group chat with my two other people who are also addicted, Christine and Ina. We made a group chat so we could solve the issue. We were praying to God that we would be OG in the Bangladeshi tournament so that we could be closing in the African tournament and that it could sort itself out. So that's the worst case that we did. We made a group chat, coordinated how to prep, and coordinated which round to prioritize. Otherwise, I have had instances where actually... During debatable breaks, I was a bit worried because at night I would do another tournament then. But ironically, or maybe it's a good thing or not, we died a bit early <laughs> in breaks. <laughs> so I guess we didn't have that predicament. So I also have a question about the possible burnout. So a lot of people get tired after a few tournaments. But how did you maintain your energy and your commitment to debating after so many consecutive tournaments without feeling the burnout and fatigue most debaters feel after a while? I know it sounds cheesy, but it's really with the people I debate with. Like, UPDS has been so supportive. Being with a new partner every two weeks or every three weeks, it makes you feel like every three weeks is an energizer, a circuit breaker, because it's a whole new person that you get to learn and you get to debate with. So I find that to be really fun for me. Like, even if it is tiring, I think what makes it worth it is being with new people and getting to know them more. On a more or less cheesy note, I think how you stop burnout is also being able to pace yourself. So how I treat tournaments now is there are a few tournaments that I know will be really challenging. So what I do is I try to have fun tournaments in between. Like normally now there's going to be some themed tournaments like socialism open and theology and economics open, which I find to be really fun topics I could be debated about. So I'm thinking of adding a few, like I always try to do a few fun things during tournaments just so that I am able to pace myself and I don't like work too hard in a single tournament because I know that the next tournament will always be there. First of all, I don't think that you should feel bad. It's like, it's cheesy. I agree with you. It's very cheesy. But there have actually been studies that like do say that one of the factors that goes into like burnout is the lack of emotional resources, like a support system or um, timely feedback from, you know, your bosses. If in if you're in the context of a job or a professor in the context of, um a class or a school. So uh, it's perfectly understandable for, you know, burnout to be offset by um, having a support system in the UPDS. But co- considering those things, um, and we, we do understand now that debating is a very personal experience for you. 
what was your most memorable experience um, in the entirety of your ano, online debate stint, I guess? The, those 37, 36, turning 37 tournaments that you've been to, what was your most memorable experience? And you want to think about, you know, it could be your most favorite, it could be your least favorite, as long as it's very memorable. And then we'd also like to ask why those are very memorable for you. I think I have two memorable experiences. One of them is memorable in not a great way. The other is memorable because it's where you're, you feel like you're in the zone in debate. And I always thought that that would only happen in real life debating, where you are in a podium and you're standing there, you can see everyone. But it was the first time where I really felt like online debating was my job. <laughs> But I guess I'll start first with the not-so-favorite experience. Uh It was actually just recently, and I don't want to name drop because I think the outcome was wonderful. They were very lovely in, in organizing the whole tournament. But what happened was me and my partner, we broke the semis and then we did not advance. So we were quite sad, but it was also just acceptable. Like It's already a different time zone. We were quite tired and we knew that we also didn't deserve to advance. So we were quite satisfied. And my partner went on to eat dinner I went on to do some homework because it was during the cram season for requirements then after five minutes we get a discord call from one of the edge core and they were calling us hurriedly to say can you debate in the final can you debate in the final the other team lost wi-fi connection and they could not debate it otherwise they'd have to iron man so I was so panicked because I would be down to do finals to be fun I called my partner I, I was rushing to get here And then when we got there, they told us, oh, I'm so sorry. We honored the request of the team to do an iron person final instead. I was like, firstly, what? And then secondly, why'd you call us? Like, it made me so sad because of the roller coaster of emotions that we had to go through. And I know as well, probably for the other team, it was also a roller coaster of emotions because eventually what ended up happening was they had to drive to a different house to get internet. And it was just such a weird experience to me that was unique to online debating that it will always stick out to me as a roller coaster of an experience for the bit. I think the second one that is a lot more energizing actually happened in Debatable Open. I am not shy at letting you guys know how much I love the econ set. And I don't think it was my best speech, maybe. But genuinely, prepping that motion with the wonderful teammates I had, being able to give that speech, and being in a room with people I also adore, people I also love debating with, it made me feel like the barriers for online debating were not there. Like, it's, it didn't feel like we were in front of a laptop debating at each other. It felt like we genuinely were still engaging with each other in a real-life tournament. And... I before that of course there were 30 other like 29 other tournaments that happened but I feel like this is the point where I truly enjoyed online debating because it made it seem like such a fun experience that I really want to keep going with you. So it's kind of nice to hear that from your experiences a lot of it is based on the people you're with so it's really evident that what keeps you going are the people around you the teammates you have even the org comms and the, the people who make the tournaments possible. So it's nice to see that there's a very human element despite it being all online. 
Um, but I guess the next question I have would be in terms of the different circuits that you're exposed to. So sadly, I'm not exposed to different circuits these days. Like unlike back in 2019, where I would travel a lot. Um, I guess it's because I'm semi-retired and most of the tournaments I do are in my own time zone. I really cannot imagine myself doing different time zone tournaments, but I will try it eventually, just not soon. So my question would be like, what have you learned from the different circuits that you think stand out? Or what do you think the Philippine circuit can learn from other tournaments abroad? Wow, I think one of the things I learned in the different circuit is when people call you ESL, the ESL experience is really there. ESL is English as a second language. And before I went out of the Philippine circuit, because really before this online debating economy, I didn't do tournaments internationally. I experienced that. People were telling me, oh, your accent is a little weird or it was hard to follow, which, you know, I don't think is a great way to judge, but it happens. And even with a room with other ESL speakers, it really is different because you are ESL from Asia and then there's ESL from Europe and then there's ESL from somewhere else. And I think at that point, outside of even accents, the other thing is just there are different norms in different circuits. Like some people like to always integrate responses. Some people care less about responses and care more about having a cohesive team case or internal logic within the case. The first thing I learned is the universal thing that everyone loves is clarity and structure, which I don't think is a strong premium in our circuit, or at least it was not a strong premium I had. So I think how to at least be able to have a fighting shot in other tournaments or in other circuits is to be very clear. I try to ignore the people who say that accents are weird. Like, I don't think accents should ever be a metric for whether or not a team should win. But I think how you win even those people is by just being very clear to the point where they can't deny you, which is, I, I really appreciated from different circuits. Like the people who were nice, they were very, very constructive. This is how you make internal logic make sense. This is how you cut down on even ifs. This is how you ensure that when you engage with other people, you're not actively undermining your case. In a comparison, I think in the Philippines, in my experience and myself as well, it's very easy to get lost in the logic of an extension because you want to make it as smart as possible or as new as possible, but not really focusing on why is this the best positioning of an argument? Why is this internally logical for the case? So I think that's the first thing I learned so much about. I think the second thing I learned is to just always be sensitive about actors and be able to characterize them a lot. I honestly think that doing international tournaments forces you to be better at IR or at least comparative politics because you don't want to make wrong decisions about the actors you're going to be defining and then people within the same room actively come from those countries. So that also makes you more aware of equity and also more aware of what characterizations happens in other circuits. Like if this is Modi, you're not going to get away with just saying that Modi is something, something, especially if there's a team who comes from India in that room. And in my experience as well, I've asked my Indian friends, oh, how's your experience with Modi? And I've had debaters talking about the developed world from their eyes, the developing world from their eyes. And I think especially in online debating, you really have to scrutinize the characterizations you make. I think the last thing I learned is in the Philippines, there's this 
liberal bias. And I say that with a lot of quote marks because I have thoughts about it as well. But I feel like in other circuits, especially in circuits that are a bit far from Asia, the liberal bias is not so much there. So it's not a, an assumption that caring for the minorities is always the most important value. Sometimes other values might exist. Some people might say that or argue that capitalism or conservative values are perfectly legitimate, which I guess is quite fine in certain debates. And I feel like in the Philippines, because you focus so much on that, we limit ourselves to the type of debates or the type of arguments that we run in terms of it always being or always assuming a liberal value. So I think in terms of being more creative with arguments and being able to break the mold of our argument structures, I think it's also really fun to be able to assess the debate from a different perspective. Speaking of international tournaments, um, we have noticed that, you know, that our next question was actually going to be about registration fees because I remember when we were in college, I wasn't super active outside of the Philippines because my perception was always that international tournaments naturally cost more and they're hard to enter because of that. Um, Nina had more luck with her subsidies as an invited adjudicator, mm -hmm. but I wasn't on the ad track at any point. So my, my question now is, in the online circuit or the online debate world, um, how's the reg fee situation? Like, are they as prohibitive as before? Um, and we're asking you this in particular because we imagine that, like, across so many tournaments, it, it, even if, like, it's comparatively lower now than it was before, like, the reg fees add up somehow. So um, is it still prohibitive? And... Like, is it that much of a barrier um, to entry as it used to be? So, yeah, I agree. I think, like, insofar as it is becoming more accessible, some tournaments are still pretty expensive, especially tournaments that get really good uh, subsidized judges, etc. I did compute it, but I think... Uh, I'm just comparing it to an offline semester. I did around eight or a bit more, 10 times more tournaments than I do in a normal semester. And I spent one third of what I presumably would have spent in a normal semester with all Filipino tournaments. So I think comparatively, it's, pretty good. It's definitely not perfect. There are still some tournaments that are around 5K, which to me would have been a flight to Cebu for nationals or something similar to that. But I think the cool thing is there are so many other options. If there's an expensive tournament, there's also a 300 peso tournament that you can always enjoy. I still think that it will be prohibitive because Maybe the reg fee is high for some tournaments, but also maybe some areas may not have a stable internet connection, which is, I think, instead the barrier that online debating must face. Uh, on a reg fee note, though, I definitely think it's a lot easier on the wallet, especially for your value. You're getting a lot more CAs or chief adjudicators 
from world finalists to EUDC champions, to Asian champions, which I felt like, wow, it's amazing because you can get all of them for 500 pesos compared to before you have to fly to a different country because it's very rare to go to the Philippines. You have to pay reg fee, you have to pay hotels. So I think it's pretty okay. Like It, it, it adds up for me, yeah, but I think... I, it's a lot less than what I would have spent. And definitely, I come from a position of privilege. That's why I'm able to afford it. So I guess I want to ask what you miss about off-site or on-site debating. What do you miss that you're not able to get from online debating? Because a lot of debaters started out with this current system, like a lot of newcomers to debate. Online debating is all they've ever known. What do you think they're missing out on, if anything? Oh, my God. Uh, last night, I was just thinking about offline debate. I think what makes debating five rounds bearable about econ or politics or whatever other hard thing happens is being able to hug other people or being able to laugh around with your friends and just do weird stuff in the hotel and just laugh or whatever. It's so fun, especially with our org. Like, I think that's something I definitely, definitely miss. If given a choice between 37 tournaments online or like five tournaments offline, I definitely think a lot about it. But I think one of the pros definitely is being with friends on off on offline tournaments. And I think that's maybe what I might choose. I think the other thing I also really miss, and I don't know if this is a very Filipino thing, is we always have rituals before we start rounds. So... It's always something I look forward to, even before when I was in high school, all the way until now. I usually entertain events like a really scared person. And even until now, I always get scared. But what always made me feel more pumped was being in a circle with other people and just talking about the bit. And that's so nice to me. It helps me just cope with the sport. So what advice would, would you give Filipinos who want to join more tournaments? Tournaments? What? <laughs> tournaments? <laughs> what a gap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're probably gonna keep that in. But like, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm keeping that in. What advice would you give Filipinos who also want to join international tournaments, especially online ones, but are kind of too shy to do so? Like, like I am a I am a relatively experienced debater, but I still get nervous, and I'm like, should should I really join this philosophy open? Should I really join this theology debate tournament? Um, so I feel shy about it. So I imagine other people would feel shy about joining tournaments just out of the blue as well. So what advice would you give Filipinos who want to join it but might be too shy to do so? I think the people I've encountered who are scared of online tournaments or international online tournaments have three-ish things that they worry about. The first is that it's online and that they feel like they're not techy enough for Discord or Zoom. And what I'd suggest is it's very easy to get used to it when you spar with your institution. So used to it. And I think that makes it a bit easier. The second concern that people usually have, which I guess is a bit more beefy and a bit more of the main concern people have is that it's a different circuit. I don't know if I'll know what the norms are. I don't know if I'll know how to win there. And my advice is just, it's it's similar to how we all learn debate. It's similar to how we learn debate when we are within our circuit. Sometimes it's trial by fire and you'll get matched with 
someone who's really, really good in different in a different circuit, maybe you'll get matched with a judge who does not understand the norms of your own debating. Maybe you'll get matched with a motion that is hard to understand. There's something that is a norm in that circuit, but maybe not so much that you're able to read up on it. And I think it's scary. I'm not gonna hide it, but I think the learning is definitely something that would be incredibly valuable. I think being able to do online tournaments it a lot as a sport and helped me and forced me to learn more about different motions. So I think if you're definitely looking to improve your skills and looking to get more experience in debate, the other circuits thing being a scary factor can actually help you grow the most because it's especially in unfamiliar territory, I think, that you can enjoy the bit the most and learn and grow in the bit the most. So yeah, I definitely think it's not something that should stop you. If you're scared, it's always good to start out with cross-training or sparse. If you want to cross-train, just message me or something. We can set something up. <laughs> but yeah, I think it helps definitely to have cross-training. I think the last concern is just about the reg fee and or how to get or how to look for online tournaments like people are scared of it and there's this really wonderful document that i always look at which is the global debating spreadsheet and if you type it up on google it'll show up it has all the reg fees it has all the dates uh, of tournaments and if you're scared about the reg of one tournament or if you're scared about a tournament being too far in terms of the time zone, you can always find time zones that are closer to GMT plus eight or the Philippine time zone. You can also uh, check out free tournaments that have been happening actually recently or relatively free tournaments because you are only asked to donate to a charity of your choice, which makes it a lot more accessible. So being able to keep track of tournaments also helps with that concern. Hopefully that helps for anyone who's considering doing online debating. It's just really interesting to me that you know, it seems that you have, as a debater, all this information about all the different kinds of tournaments that you can join. It kind of feels like a competitive market where, like, all of these tournaments are competing for, you know, for the consumers. In this case, the consumers are the, you know, the debaters. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's like econ all over again. Where you go, like, they do competitive pricing. Hopefully, no, they, they, they try to do competitive pricing. And, like, I, I understand that, even tournaments who want to have better judges, um, they really try more so now to have competitive rates for um, invited adjudicators. And that was something that we, the three of us, were thinking about when we were planning um, Debatable Open. But I have another question about um, other circuits, which is, has there ever been a time when like there was just this huge culture shock and I'm not I'm not really talking about like these motions or are foreign to me I'm speaking more about like the jargon being foreign to you or um has there ever been a case where jargon that was very popular in the Philippines is unfamiliar to someone from another circuit yeah, I think the biggest culture shock came when we went to a particular circuit and the norm was that you ask them questions in the middle of the OA. Or the judge would actively ask questions in the middle of the OA. Certain debaters would stop them and ask for questions. I was so surprised, especially because in the Philippines, you really try not to do that. So 
eh, it's just you, you kind of adjusted and we still stuck with what we did, especially since it was just that one circuit. I think in terms of terminology as well, converse burdens is a very Filipino meta term, which made me feel confused because you were saying, oh, converse burden, converse burden. And then they were like, oh, but you didn't prove your counterfactual. And I was like, is that the same? Or is it that quite similar or something like that? And then that's when I was forced to learn what other circuits meant. And I think this isn't a Filipino term that we get a lot, but the word Delta, I thought that was just a meme on like debate posting, but they actually use it. Delta is basically just the change that happens on your side. And there's so much discourse about does it make sense? But I hear it all the time from especially Western circuits. And I really genuinely thought it was a meme. But then I got culture shock when I actually heard it within yards. So I think those three things really stand out to me as, what the freak? <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually the reason why um, our next episode was supposed to be about debate jargon, and we're still developing that episode. We want to talk about like how language works in, in debating. But next time, yeah, that's for next week. Um, <laughs> the last thing that we wanted to ask was actually, if you had a time machine or something like that, Like assuming the technology exists and this is an activity <laughs> and this house is barely gaspy. Um, and you could go back in time and do all those 37 tournaments, 36 turning 37 tournaments all over again. Would you do it? Like, would you come back and, and do like online debating in the way that you did? Yes, definitely. I guess that's expected because at this point, some people are like, we're addicted. <laughs> But Genuinely, I think I enjoyed every single tournament. I learned so much from every tournament, even the tournaments where I didn't break or tournaments that were heartbreaking when we lost. Genuinely, I think it helped me become a better debater. But of course, more importantly, it helped me value debate as an art and a sport as well. Being able to prep with my partner. And as you guys mentioned, I really enjoy being with my partners. I would take that opportunity to just always do it again and again. <laughs> so thank you again for agreeing to be in this episode with us. Um, we really value your insights. So before we end this episode, you have the floor. Is there anything you'd like to promote or anything you'd like our listeners to know, whether it be tips or tricks, or maybe you have a particular event you want to promote or maybe your social media if you want, I don't know. Your SoundCloud. Your SoundCloud, you know? Uh, I guess just for the Filipinos here, PIDC just got ratified, and I'm incredibly excited to be part of the organizing committee. The best way to practice online debating is definitely through going to the largest Asian like tournament, or one of the largest at least, and it's the Asian Nationals for the Philippines. So hopefully you guys sign up for it, and I'm really excited to see everyone. Okay. Think that's it for this episode of this weird crossover episode between my strange addiction and <laughs> debatable opinion, Kyle. Um, thanks again for um, Bea's agreement to to come here and talk about her addiction. <laughs> that's it for this episode. We hope to see you in the next one. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.